0: So please grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. We've been preaching our way through this letter. Uh, It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, written to a pastor named Timothy who is ministering in the Greek city of Ephesus. And so within chapter 2, he started off talking about all types of prayer for all types of people. And really what we see in the context is prayer in the context of the gathered service, the the assembly of God's people lifting their voices up together in prayer. And then, so he rooted that call to prayer in truth about Jesus, that he is the one mediator between God and man, that he is the one who gave himself as a ransom for our sins so that we could actually approach God in prayer. And then last week we, we looked at this section where Paul begins to address men and women in particular, men and women in the context of worship in the gathered assembly of the church. And so we, last week we saw instructions, first for men, then for women. And today uh, we're turning to a passage where he is continuing with the same theme but continuing with further instruction uh, for women in the context of worship. Now I, I mentioned last week that this this whole section here is a is a difficult section in Scripture. It's not an easy passage, uh, and and therefore it's helpful to be clear on our, our presuppositions coming into this. And of course, a presupposition is just an assumption that you start with. We all have presuppositions, and you can break down the the presuppositions going into this uh, in really five ways. But it all touches onto the Bible that. That the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is breathed out by God, as we'll see. Uh, the Bible is without error. We believe that there aren't mistakes, there aren't accidents in the Bible. Uh, and therefore, because it is the Word of God, because it is authoritative, that we, we could say that's authoritative, right? That that it speaks to our lives, our culture, so it speaks with authority in the first century, it speaks with authority today as well. And the fourth, because it's the word of God, because it's without error, because it's authoritative, we believe that the Bible is clear. Uh, The word that theologians use for that is perspicuity, which I always find ironic that they use an unclear word to refer to the clarity of the Bible. But you might say, well, the Bible sometimes doesn't seem clear. And we'll see that when we get into this text today, that that on the surface, not everything seems clear to us. uh, And there are things that are confusing in the Bible at first, but we believe that that's Fundamentally, our problem, because of our own limited perspective, that the Bible in its central message is clear. Then the final thing that we can say about the Bible is that the Bible is good. The Bible is good when it affirms our cultural assumptions, the Bible is good when it challenges our cultural assumptions because fundamentally the Bible comes from a good God, a loving God, a God who created us, who knows us, so we can trust the Bible. And it's really the same as we come to this passage. 1 uh, Timothy chapter 2 and, and verse 11, where we will start reading that this is the word of God. It's breathed out by God. This is without error. It's, it's truthful in everything God intends to teach. It's authoritative. It's, it's clear. It's, it's good, um, even though it's it's difficult in our current time and context. So uh, this is the, the word of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly. With all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Um, Father, we trust today, that your word is, is good, it's truthful, it's without error, it's, um, it's what, exactly what we need to hear, uh, but Lord, sometimes it's, it can be hard, and, and so we want to understand your word, and so Father, I, I pray that we can see today the goodness of your word uh, for men, for women, for children. I pray that you would guide me in preaching this difficult passage, that, that I would speak what is true to your word um, that it would it would shape us and form us and, and mold us, that we can be more like Jesus in each and every aspect of our life. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. And so as we look at the passage today, it, it's, it's talking about the the role of women, and I think we can reflect just at the outset at the setting out into this text, uh, just in the how much has changed in the way that. Society has thought about these issues in the past hundred years. And I think especially as biblical Christians, there is a lot to celebrate uh, in the advancement of women in society within the last hundred years. Uh, Sometimes when people use the word feminism, some people use that in a positive way, some people use it in a negative way, but there is a lot that we can celebrate as biblically minded Christians about feminism over the past hundred years of society, the, the right of women to vote, the right of women to own property, the, the right of women to work in what were formerly male-dominated fields. And we can celebrate that as biblically-minded Christians uh, because the Bible actually has a very high view of the role of women within the family, the church, within society as a whole. The Bible teaches that, that fundamentally men and women are both created in the image of God. It, it says in Genesis chapter 1 that in the image of God, he created them male and female. And so right from the outset of the Bible, there is a sense of, of equal dignity of men and women as being both created in the image of God. And then you see that theme continue then throughout the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is full of brave, strong women who use their gifts to serve the Lord in all sorts of ways. You can think of Rahab, who saved the spies in Jericho, put her own life on the line, is committed in Hebrews as being faithful. You can think of of Ruth, who was so brave in leaving Moab to accompany her mother-in-law into Israel and showed so much faithfulness and steadfast love. You can think of Deborah, uh, who challenged Barak to stand up and to lead Israel's forces. Or even in the book of Proverbs, there's the, the Proverbs 31 woman. There's this long description of the, the godly woman in the book of Proverbs. And it's always striking to me when I read that, that it, it's not the, the stereotypical 1950s housewife model of what a godly woman looks like. It says it specifically that her arms are strong, that she is uh, buying and selling. She's out doing, doing business. She's a, she's a strong woman, a competent woman a woman who is who is engaged in society and the world and caring for others caring for the poor caring for her her family and then you see that even carried over into the the new testament with the the high place of women within the ministry of Jesus you see Mary the mother of Jesus the the place that she holds in the bible throughout the history of the church among both protestants and catholics you you see Mary and Martha, the followers of Jesus, and, and how they're commended, especially Mary and sitting at the feet of Christ is the model of what it is to, to learn from Jesus. You can think of the way that Jesus treated women throughout his ministry, that he, he, he showed so much love and respect to the woman at the well in John 4. You can think of the woman who touched his garment was healed of the flow of blood. The woman who washed his feet with her hair and her tears. The woman caught in adultery that over and over again, Jesus showed incredible respect to women, the great dignity of women. Um, And this was even played out in the the very end of his life where all of his disciples were terrified once he was captured and was hauled before the authorities, but the women stayed with him. The women were the ones around him while he was on the cross. And then the women were actually the first witnesses to the resurrection as well. Uh, which is remarkable, one of the evidence that that this was written uh, by something that is true, because even at that time, women couldn't bear witness in court, in the court of law, but yet the first witnesses were women. Then this carries over to the book of Acts, where you see women who are using their gifts to build up the church, and the history of the early church. Tabitha, Lydia, Priscilla, and you look at the writings of Paul, Phoebe, who served the church. You see, even in the book of 2 Timothy, and so the, where we are looking at First and 2 Timothy, it talks about his mother uh, named Eunice and his grandmother named Lois, who taught the scriptures to him, who, who instructed him and, and raised him up in the fear of the Lord. And you see that even carried into the history of the church. For instance, uh, St. Augustine's mother, Monica, uh, was a godly woman who prayed for him and provided for St. Augustine really the model of what it is to be a faithful Christian, what it is to follow the Lord. And so, so there's this, this place of women that has been consistent throughout the history of the church. And it's a countercultural view now. It is a countercultural view in the first century in many places in the world. So much so that Paul, who penned the, the same words that we're looking at today, from 1 Timothy, wrote this in, in Galatians 3. He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, some sometimes people will quote that to try to essentially nullify what we're going to look at from 1 Timothy. But it's still important to say that that's coming from the same author. This isn't a person who was holding to repressive views of his time, it says, men and women created in the image of God are are equal before the Lord in dignity. That that in terms of salvation, that there is no distinction at all. And so you can think about I was I was mentioning how we can have a, a positive view in certain ways of the advancement of women in the last hundred years, and I think that it's not an accident that 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 this elevation of the dignity of women arose in a society, in, the, in a Western society that had been shaped largely by the influence of Christianity. Not that Christianity was the, was the only influence, but there, there was a sense from a Judeo-Christian worldview of the dignity of men and women before the Lord created in the image of God, which is very different in societies that you see shaped, for instance, by a religion like Islam, where even today in most Islamic cultures, women have to cover their hair or their faces, can't vote, um, often can be mistreated with impunity, can't drive, can't pursue formal education, not in every culture shaped by Islam, but quite often that would be the case. And so I think that, that as you see what the, the, the soil that Christianity produced for the dignity of women, that it's, it's striking. And of course, that's why it was countercultural in the first century because in the first century in Greco-Roman society it was a society that really said that men and women are are different both in essence and in function and so what that means is that, that men and women were different in essence where if you read a lot of Roman and Greek sources from the time of the New Testament they would say well women are inferior or they're less intelligent or they have less dignity therefore they have a different function in society and that was where Christianity said, no, that's not true. Men and women are both created in the image of God, the same in essence. But modern society then looks at men and women and says that they're equal in essence and completely the same in function and role in every single way in every single place. And so that men and women are basically interchangeable within society. But the Bible then offers a different, and this is what we'll see as we get into our text—a a, a different answer, both from the prevailing notion today and the prevailing notion in the first century. And so the Bible then comes as a as a countercultural book at both times, because for the for the first century it was challenging a prevailing misogyny, a prevailing sense that would push down women, and then today the Bible comes with this countercultural view that there can be differences in roles, especially within the family and within the church. And of course, this difference of roles in the church you've seen played out in the history of the church, that that men and women have been honored, not always perfectly within the church. But you also see that men and women have played different roles within the church, flowing out of the teaching of the Bible. Uh, For instance, you consider the three major streams of Christianity today, uh, Roman Catholicism, which still doesn't ordain women as priests. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, which by and large still does not ordain women as priests. And then in the Protestant churches, uh, until the 20th century, it was the, the majority practice across the board that for the ordained office of to administer the sacraments, to preach the word, was a male office. And that didn't really start to change until the early to mid-20th century. And so now you as you look at Protestant churches, you see a mixed bag of some churches that will have women preaching and teaching and administering the sacraments, and some that don't. And so we said, well, why is the difference? How do we decide what is true here? And, and this is where, as we come to this text, and this what I started in the introduction about the authority of the Bible, that we don't want to just follow our culture. We don't want to follow our culture into misogyny, which the Bible condemns as evil. We don't want to follow also the culture in ways that would undermine scripture. So what does the Bible actually teach? And that's what we see in our text today. So if you close your Bible in that long introduction, (laughs) uh, open your Bible again uh, to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to very carefully walk through this passage to really see what is this saying? What is God saying through the, the Holy Spirit by the inspiration that he gave to Paul as he penned these words? So the first thing that we see in verse 11 is this. He says, let a woman learn. And right there we can, we can stop, because it's easy then to start to focus on the second part, which from the modern perspective presents the difficulties. But in a, in a very real way, that itself is a countercultural statement. Because there are many places, many times in the world today and throughout history where it is thought that women should not learn learn where women are not given the privilege of formal education for a a number of reasons. But here, we see him saying women should learn. So this is so different than what you see in a country like Afghanistan, especially now since the US pullout where women are not allowed to learn. There are many religions where women are not allowed to attend religious services, but here it says that, that women should learn, and it's a command, it's an imperative, they should learn that this this duty and this privilege of studying the scriptures, growing in the knowledge of the Lord is for men and for women. And this is where I often think of Mary and her words that are recorded for us in the book of Luke. It's, it's been pointed out by a lot of commentators that, that whenever Mary is speaking in scripture, she's constantly alluding to the Old Testament scriptures or quoting the Old Testament scriptures, that she was clearly a woman who had learned the scriptures who knew the Bible forward and, and backward was acquainted, and so that that's for all of us to, to sit and to learn the scriptures, to see that as a calling, not just for men, not just for women, uh, because in our society, maybe it could be the opposite, where where men think, well, I don't need to study, I don't need to learn, um, and, and often women are far better students of the Bible than men in modern society, but it's saying for all of us, for men, for women, we should learn. But then as the text continues, he says, let a woman learn, and then he says, how? Uh, and this is where it starts to raise questions. So he says, let a woman learn quietly. And so you see that word quietly, and you say, well, what does that mean? Does, does that mean that women aren't allowed to speak in church or to, to sing in church, or, or when does that start? When you enter the building, what does that actually mean? And this is where it's helpful to, in your Bible to look back at verse 2 in 1 Timothy there. And he he said in, in verse two of chapter two, he's talking about all types of prayer for all types of people. And he says that we should we should pray for our leaders so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so when he's using the word quiet there, just a few verses before, he's not meaning complete and utter silence, not speaking or uttering a word. Uh, that we're not called, according to that verse, to become monks who make vows of silence to never speak in our life. Though I know for for maybe for some of us that would be a good thing to do. <laughs> uh, but, but that's most likely not what he's saying. And I think it's similar in verse 11 where it's talking about a certain silence and demeanor. And this is what Phil Riken in his commentary points out. He says that the word does not mean that women have to keep their mouths shut Rather it refers to a gentle demeanor, as it does earlier in the chapter where Paul says that Christians should lead a peaceful and quiet life. And I think you say, "Well, what does that look like?" And it looks like the other Mary. I mentioned Mary, the mother of Jesus, but you can think of Mary, uh, the mother, the not the mother of Martha, the sister of Martha, and that is recorded in Luke chapter 10. Uh, they Jesus was teaching. And then Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning quietly, uh, hearing the word of God while Martha was bustling around with all sorts of things to do. And Jesus says that that she is the one who chose the good portion, which will not be taken away. And so what this is is saying that that within the context of the the corporate worship service that we were talking about to, to learn quietly, to learn attentively. And of course, that's, something that applies to men and women alike who are sit under, under preaching of the word. I mean, often I, myself, when I go to a conference and I'm sitting under preaching to learn quietly, to sit under the preaching of God's word. So that's the first way to learn. It says to learn quietly. But then look, he adds something else in verse 11. If you look there in your Bible, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And that's another word that can cause cultural problems today. And no one is storming out yet, so that's good. Um, That we we see the word submissiveness, and it brings all kinds of, of negative connotations with it. And some of those negative connotations are understandable. But it's important when you see that word submissiveness to understand what the Bible means. That the Bible has the vision that, that every single Christian has different roles of submission, that every single Christian in different places of life is called to submit. For instance, all Christians are commanded to submit to God in James 4, 7. All Christians are commanded to submit to the civil government in Romans 13:1. All Christians are commanded to submit to their elders and pastors in Hebrews 13, seven, and even as a pastor, when I'm ordained, I make a vow of submission to submit to the other elders, to the other pastors in my presbytery, the network. So I am under a vow of submission as a pastor as well. It says in scripture that all children are commanded to submit to their parents. Ephesians 6, one, all bond servants to their masters, Ephesians 6, 15, all wives to their husbands, In Ephesians 5.22, the church to to submit to Christ in Ephesians 5.24 is the the bride of Christ. And so you see that in different ways, we can occupy roles of leadership or roles of submission. And when we look at what the Bible says about submission, it holds it up not as, as something demeaning, but actually as modeled after Christ himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 it says but i want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God and when it's uses the word head it's talking about headship and and submission and so but you see there that that the head of Christ is God that that as we think about carrying out a role of submission, no matter what that role is, that the pattern is Christ Himself, who submitted to the will of His Father in the accomplishment of redemption. It says in Scripture that He submitted Himself to the law in order to redeem us willingly. That Christ submitted Himself even to the authority of Mary and Joseph as His earthly parents. It tells us in the book of Luke that, that He was submissive to them in his childhood. And so when we see the word submission, we're not seeing something that is that is shameful, but something that is that actually models the submission of Christ in carrying out redemption. But if Christ is then the model of submission, Christ is then also the model of leadership. Because it says in scripture for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved himself, or sorry, loved us and gave himself for us and so so that that the the model of leadership then is this loving self-sacrificial pattern of Christ himself and that's why the the idea of submission is never something that can be used as a as a weapon it's never something that can, should ever be used to justify abuse that if you ever find yourself in a situation where you are being abused, that is wrong, that is, that is evil, um, and, and that you you can seek help. You could talk to me, someone else in your life, what it looks like to get to a place of, of safety, um, that, that the idea of submission should never be used to endure abuse. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, what he's, he's saying here when he, he says that women should learn in all submission, and he added to that word all, which is really, if you think about it, when in terms of learning the scriptures, sitting under the preaching of the word, uh, the, the submission to the preaching of the word that, that anyone sitting under preaching is called to exemplify when we hear the preaching of the word of God on the Lord's day. But it's also how Hope Church seeks to be, that Hope Church is the bride of Christ, seeks to be a church that is in all submission, uh, that we seek to sit, as we take the, the Bible not over the Bible, saying that we're the ones who are gonna decide what we want the Bible to say, what we want it to, to be, but as a church to have all submission to the word of God, to, to receive it, to try to, to practice it, to, to live it, Uh, with letting it be the authority in our lives for all of us to learn quietly and submissively under the word of God. And so that's verse 11 in our text. But now let's move from verse 11 to verse 12. So look there in your Bible. Paul's continuing the same argument. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. So there's that idea of quietness repeated again. So you can see then the way that verse 11 and verse 12 are are working together. So he's saying positively, this is what I want you to do. I want you to learn. And then on the negative side, what not to do, not to teach or exercise authority over men. Now this, this verse raises all sorts of questions. One question would be, what does Paul mean by I? Why does he say I do not permit? Some have said, well, maybe that's him softening what he's saying in some way. Maybe this is saying this is my own personal opinion. I think this, but it's it's my own personal opinion. But I don't think that's what he means when he says I. Part of it is the way that he then will root this in the order of creation itself in verse 13 and 14. We'll get there in a moment. Also, the word permit is a very strong word in the original language, that what he's saying here is is I do not permit speaking as an apostle is one who is speaking for Christ under the, the command of Christ, speaking the word of God. So I don't think that we can soften it because he says I. But then we look at it and we say, well, he's clearly forbidding something. So no matter what your view is, I think that we can agree that there's something that he's saying not to do here. And so the question is, what is that thing? And he describes it as to teach and to exercise authority over men. And those are two words, there's one word to teach. What's translated exercise authority is another word in the original language. They're unusual words, um, at least in the New Testament. So that can present some issues of understanding because it's hard to turn to other places in the New Testament to see what they, what they mean, the word exercise authority. And so some, some say that, well, maybe the exercise authority means to usurp authority. That's actually the way it reads in the King James Bible, not to usurp authority over a man. And so when you read it that way, what it would seem to say is not so much the exercising of authority as usurping the, the authority over somebody else, to, to try to, to take the role. Um, and so some have read it in that way, which again would soften a bit what, what he's saying. Uh, but I don't think that that's what he's, he's getting at here. That is not so much the usurping of authority because in the, both teaching is a positive idea, exercising authority is a positive idea, that there's, then that also usurping of authority, that would be a problem for men and women, but there seems to be something here that he's saying that is unique to women. So you say, well, what then is he saying? What is he getting at? And I think that the, he's not saying that that women can never exercise authority or teach in any way, because if you took it just on the surface, you would say, well, does this women shouldn't teach? Does that mean they can never teach anything to anyone? Well, we wouldn't want to say that. Uh, And then can women exercise authority over a man? Well, there are clearly contexts where women can exercise authority over men. And so, I mean, if you work in the secular world in the business and you have your boss is a woman, you can't go and quote this verse to her to say that you don't have to do your work uh, or that she can't tell you what you should be doing, that that in those contexts, men are commanded because we're to submit to our employers, to our leaders, or if we have Says we're to submit to our governing authorities. Well, if your governing authority is, is a woman, that there is a call to submit to the authority of that woman who is in that the political sphere of authority. And so when Paul says to he does not allow women to teach or exercise authority over men, I, what is the context? And in the context, as we said here, is within the church. And even within the church, the immediate context is within the, the gathered assembly of God's people, the, the, the preaching of the word. And so that's where, when it talks about teaching in the, this letter, it's usually teaching of scripture. And, it, and so it's not two actions, teaching and exercising authority. Rather, it, it's, it's one action, you could say. It's this authoritative teaching of the word of God this is the preaching and the teaching of the word <clears throat> and you say well is that supported elsewhere in Scripture and and this is where you can actually look at what Paul says in the book of first Corinthians so in this is another letter of the Apostle Paul 1 Corinthians chapter 11 he's given instructions for men and women and he talks about how women are to pray in church and so he envisions women speaking in church But then you keep reading in 1 Corinthians, and then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and he talks about women being silent. He says in chapter 14, verse 34, as in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. And so you look at that, whoa, that's in one book. Here he's saying when women speak in church, this is how they should do it. Another place he's saying women should not speak in church, is this just a contradiction in the Bible? Is this incoherent in some way? That's where when you really look at the context in 1 Corinthians 14, where he talks about women not teaching and not speaking, that's where he's saying when people are prophesying in church that that men and women would prophesy, but, it, but when it came to the interpretation of prophecy, that he says that would be for men and not just any man, but presumably the, the elders of the church who are appointed to that work. And as we pull that into our context where the the canon is closed, we have a a closed scripture that the equivalent of prophesying in our context is praying, reading scripture. But the equivalent of the interpretation of prophecy is is the preaching of the word. And that's why, as we'll see then, in the the very next chapter, Paul's about to go into the qualifications for elders in chapter three. So this is in the context where he's talking about, about leadership within the church, And that the the administration of the sacraments, the preaching of the word, the authoritative teaching is to be carried out by elders within the church who are set apart for that work. Um, And so it's not just, just any leader who is called to that work, but someone who meets the qualifications of chapter three that we'll get into, who feels an internal call to that work, who is ordained to that work, who is examined in their views, and then called to preach. And so... You say, well, what then does that look like in Hope Church, as we seek to sit under the Word of God ourselves? What well, means seeking to be faithful here? That that the the way that we often put it is that a, a woman can do anything that an unordained man can do in the church, uh, with the exception of testing gifts in preaching. So, like when Jonathan preaches. So that means that 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 women are encouraged to use teaching gifts within the life of the church, to build up the body of Christ with the gifts that they've been given, perhaps even to, to teach Sunday school or a to teach a, a Bible study, even where, where men are present, because I think that there's the focus in this text, what Paul's talking about is the authoritative preaching and teaching of the word, but when it comes to the preaching of the word, um, to the, the office of elder, uh, the teaching elder, ruling elder, that that according to scripture, is for men. And that is what Paul is saying and and the witness of the New Testament as a whole. Now, as we say that then, I think that that this is where we start to raise the why question. We say, well, why in the world would this be the case? It seems strange, especially from our, our modern perspective. So this is where then some will look at the why question and say, well, it's because Paul is, is himself a, a product of his time with male chauvinistic views. But, I, but as we take the authority of Scripture, I don't think that's where we should go if we're going to sit under Scripture. Some also will say, well, maybe Paul's just dealing with a particular problem in the life of this church at this time. Maybe there were women who were trying to usurp authority over men, as we talked about. So he's dealing with a problem, but it's not a universally applicable verse for all churches at all times but again I don't think that that is a fair reading of the text because there's no mention of that we're just are reading that into it there's there's no mention of a problem going on here that he's addressing specifically others could say that well maybe he's saying this because women were unable to receive formal education he wanted an educated clergy who could read and expound the scriptures but I don't think that's a good explanation either because I think he would have said, let women be educated so that they can preach. Or you could say, well, maybe he accommodated the practices of the first century for the mission of the church, that there wouldn't be a stumbling block for the church in some way. But there again, Paul in the New Testament wasn't afraid to be countercultural, to push against the culture of their time. So that doesn't seem like a fair reading either. And so you say, well, why? And this is where, thankfully, Paul gives an answer. He gives the why for us in the text. So look in your Bible at verse 13. He says, for, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. So his rationale here is rooted not in a particular unique situation at that time in the first century in that church, but he goes all the way back to the beginning of creation and appeals to the order of creation itself. Uh, that, that men and women are created both in the image of God, but, but that when, when Adam is created first and then Eve is created out of his rib and, and Adam names Eve woman, that, that is saying that that order is not an arbitrary event. It's not, not just what happened to happen, uh, but rather it's God was intending something in the same way that he created in seven, six days and rested on the seventh to teach us something about a pattern of work and rest. So when he creates man first and then creates Eve, he's, he's teaching something about the, the ordering of society uh, where, where Adam and Eve were, were equal in essence, equal in dignity, but then within the garden had, had different roles that they were called to, to carry out. And so then what, what we see then in verse 14 is then where that that role of of good leadership, of different roles from God and creation um, is turned upside down. He says in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now there are some look at that and say, well maybe, he is he blaming women for the fall? And elsewhere in Romans chapter five, Paul says that sin came into the world through one man that the ultimate blame of the fall falls on men, on Adam specifically, and not on women. And so when he says that that Eve was deceived, (coughs) pardon me, what is he getting at here? And I think that what he's getting at is that there was this reversing of the, the order of creation of leadership and submission, that Adam should have been leading but instead, he was following and that Eve was deceived, but Adam knew what he was doing, <laughs> that he willfully walked into it. Um, and, and so this is the outcome of, of reversing the roles in church. And that, and that 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 is what he's then saying as he pulls this pattern. He's saying this is the pattern for us as well in the church. And, and you can think it's, it's very similar to a society where the, the older brother might have a leadership position. It's not saying that the older brother is smarter or better, but there's an ordering of it. Now, some people look at this verse then and say, well, maybe this is saying that that women are more easily deceived than men and that's why they shouldn't teach or preach. But I think that we also have to be careful there uh, because Paul doesn't say that directly. Uh, he doesn't give the exact reason for it. That, that, in my own view, I think women are equally as as discerning, as competent as men are, but what he's dealing here with is the the order of creation, the the structure of the different roles of men and women to build up the church, and we we look at that and we trust God's goodness, we trust his order, even if we don't fully understand the the reason for it in our society and in our world, we can trust the, the goodness of it. But now as we Wrap up today, we, we turn to the final verse, verse 15. And this is where Paul says uh, that uh, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, now look at that closely where he says in verse 15 that she will be saved and then it says, if they continue. So he shifts there from singular she to plural they. So what is he, what is he getting at here? And I think that the she is, is talking about Eve. That, that's the she that was in the verse before. And so what this is saying is it's is, is reference to what's called the, the, the first presentation of the gospel back in Genesis chapter 15 where it says, that I will, God is speaking, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so for, for Eve, yes, she was deceived, but then what, what it's is saying is that ultimately the, the Messiah, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, comes through childbearing, comes through her, uh, and through the seed of the woman. Ultimately, you turn to the New Testament, Mary giving birth to Jesus, that the Savior is born into the world through childbearing, that salvation comes. So it's not saying that there's a two-way of salvation for men and women. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He is the only way of salvation, but it came through the the Messiah coming through childbearing. But then you look at that final section there where he says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. And this is the way that that for all of us, that we take hold of Christ, that that it is through faith as we put our trust in Jesus, that the seed of the woman who comes to crush the head of the serpent, that it's faith that unites us to Christ, uh, it's faith that that unites us so that we are justified, declared righteous in his sight. That faith produces love, the the, the fruit of faith is love. That leads to holiness or sanctification as we grow in holiness throughout our life enduring to the end and self-control is a gift of God's grace. That this then is the calling for women, is the calling for men. This is how we live out our, our faithfulness and all of our callings um, in the world. Even though we see different roles of men and women within the, the life of the church, that it's all being built up in faith and love and, and holiness until Christ comes again. And it's ultimately this, this what we're putting our faith in that we see here in this meal today that we see a a picture of the gospel here of what Jesus did for us. Jesus coming in a role of submission to lay down his life for the forgiveness of our sins, that that his body was broken, his blood was shed as he was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, opening up the way of salvation for men, for for women, for for children, for all who repent and to trust in in Christ. So if you're here and you've never repented and and trusted in Jesus— and um, you come to this meal, we uh, we would encourage you to, to remain seated, um, to to not come forward to take this. The Bible says that it would actually be spiritually damaging. But for for the rest, for those who have repented, trusted in Christ, made that public by being baptized, by being part of a church that preaches the gospel, to come and to receive this, and and really for for men and for women all to to. Come to this knowing that Christ is going to strengthen us to use our gifts that every single one of you is gifted by the Lord for service, for building up the church, for building up the saints. And and so one of the ways that Christ strengthens us is through the preaching of the word, uh, the authoritative teaching and exercising authority of scripture and through the, the sacraments that he uses this to strengthen us. So we come to be strengthened in what he has done for us on the cross. And we come really as those who profess the faith that we hold together using the words of the Nicene Creed. So turn to page seven in your your order of worship there. We're going to read the faith that we profess together as we come to this meal. So church, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall never end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Because in the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took bread. And when he gave a thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way after supper, he took the cup, said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come forward in any order when you're ready. Take the cup. We have a gluten-free on this side, regular here. I'll return to your chair and we'll take it together at the end. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your calling in our lives. We thank you for Jesus who, who came and submitted himself to the law, submitted himself to, to your will and the accomplishment of redemption as the God-man. And Father, we pray for, for all of us that we can sit under your word. Lord, we pray that Hope Church, that we can be a church that that shows all submissiveness to your word in the the, the hard parts, the easy parts, the parts we like, the parts we don't, uh, that, that we would see your word as good. And Lord, we, we thank you for the, the order that you have given us in, in society and um, as modeled in, in creation. And so, Father, we pray for, for faithful leadership of, of elders within churches to model the love and submission of Christ. And, uh, Lord, we pray for, for humble, faithful submission, um, of to um, the lawful authority in the church that you have ordained Lord but uh, we, we pray that for all of us in our submission roles, whether it's to the, to the civil government or, or to our employers or to our uh, other aspects of our of our lives where we are called um, for this role of submission father that you would give us the, the grace to model and where we have places of leadership, I pray that it would be that the loving sacrificial, Uh, leadership of Christ pouring himself out for the forgiveness of our sins and um, that that it would be um, service um, not a service of self service of others and so father pray that as we come to this meal you would use this again to strengthen us um, in your faithfulness we pray in Jesus name amen